You know, sometimes books that are written for children are actually really helpful for adults. Some of you love reading to your children the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, but truth be told, you actually like the book as well. Or maybe reading Pilgrim's Progress, you have found that what can be true is this, that resources for children can actually be really helpful for adults. This last week, we were um, talking as a preaching application team, a number of guys that I study with, and we were talking about a children's book, and it's this one called The Big Picture Story Bible, and identifying that this book, while written for children, has really important and big truths in it. In fact, the back of the book says this, the Bible is a big book about a big God who keeps a big promise. Some of you need to write that down, because that's really good. Put that in the front of your Bible. Like, that, that's what the Bible's about. It's a big book about a big God who keeps a big promise. And in fact, if you want to develop your understanding of the Bible, here's a suggestion I'd have to you. Find a storybook and read it to your kids. In fact, read it to your grandkids. By storybook, I mean a Bible storybook. In fact, this is so um, important that I'm going to do that this morning uh, with you. So imagine I'm, I'm tucking you into bed. It's a little awkward, but just imagine that. <laughs> and I'm reading this story to you. Here it goes. An angel showed John many things. John saw the holy room of God and the throne where Jesus sits. He saw the place of hell for everyone who rejects Jesus as God's king. He even saw Satan crushed forever. And he also saw a new heaven and a new earth. And then he heard something wonderful, a loud voice came from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. I am making all things new. Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And after hearing this, John saw a garden inside a city, a river as clear as crystal was flowing from the throne. On either side was the tree of life. And then John awoke from his vision. John smiled. John knew all God's promises, all the things Jesus had told him years ago were true. And the old man could hardly write fast enough. He had seen the very good ending waiting for everyone who follows Jesus as God's king. God's forever people will one day live in God's forever place under God's forever rule. That's really good. God's forever people will one day live in God's forever place under God's forever rule. Today we're going to talk about those three realities, God's forever place, God's forever people, and God's forever rule, and we're going to use Revelation 21 and 22 to see how this plays out. By the way, that paradigm of place, people, and rule shows up all over the Bible. Think, for instance, the Garden of Eden. It's the perfect place where God's people dwell in God's location under God's rule. Think of what happened in the fall. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were expelled out of the garden. They lost God's place. They were still God's people, but they were fundamentally flawed, and the reason they were displaced from God's place was because they failed to live under God's rule. Think of Old Testament Israel. The people of God are searching for the promised land, a place and they meet God in a temple or a tabernacle, 
And that people called out of Ur of Chaldees by um, the calling of Abraham, they live underneath the rule of God by virtue of the law. And think of Jesus, who is God's son. He comes to die so that sinful people could be brought back under the rule of God so that eventually they can live in God's place forever. So today I want to unpack Revelation 21 and 22, and I want to use this paradigm from this big picture story Bible of God's place, God's people, and God's rule. And I want for us to think about what does it mean for heaven to be like this, or specifically the new heaven and the new earth, and then how does that relate to where we live today? How do we relate to God's rule? How do we think about being God's people? And what does it mean that we're gathered in this place today? So, new heavens and the new earth. If you have a copy of God's Word, let's go to Revelation 21. I'm going to attempt to walk you through all of chapter 21 and then also the first five verses of chapter 22. So, let's begin. First, God's forever place. Verses 1 to 4, we see that the final dwelling place for God's people is a very special place, something familiar and yet something new. It's described as the new heaven and the new earth. Verse 1 begins with the word then, meaning that chapter 21 follows chapter 20. Well, what happens in chapter 20? Well, in chapter 20, what precedes it, in verses 1 through 6, we see the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth where Satan is temporarily bound, and then we see that Satan is loosed, and then he is defeated and cast into the lake of fire in verse 10 of chapter 20, and then there is a great judgment where the dead are raised to life, they stand before God, and because of their rebellion, are sentenced to the lake of fire. So we have both Satan, and we have all those who followed him are now fully dealt with. And after this decisive and powerful display of divine justice, it is then that John sees a new heaven and a new earth. And it's important to note that verse 1 says that these This new heaven and the new earth were there because the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So it's not just that human beings are affected by the fall. It's not just that human beings are infected by the sinful brokenness of the world, but the entire created order is. And so that whole created order has passed away. It has been purified and renewed. Satan has been dealt with, all sin has been dealt with, and now finally the created order is dealt with. What's more, it says, the sea was no more. Now it's hard to know whether you take this literally or entirely figuratively. Regardless, it's somehow related to the fact that the sea in the book of Revelation is associated with rebellion. It's it's from the sea that the first beast comes out of in Revelation 13. So it seems like what John is seeing here is that everything related to the brokenness and the rebellion of the world in this place has now ended. God has dealt with it all. So we talked last week about the resurrection of the body. Think of this as cosmic resurrection. What was old has now become new. In two weeks from now, we'll look at 2 Peter 3, but let me show you this passage. It says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, 
And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are to be thus dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? That's what we're going to talk about in the final week in this series. What does heaven mean for earth? It means this. Waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So something happens in terms of the transformation of the cosmos. The Bible calls this the new heaven and the new earth. This this newness is new in a new sort of quality or something that has recently come into being. It's not entirely new, but it's a resurrection sort of new. It is that the entire cosmic order has been renewed. So note here, it's not only that people who are renewed, but it is the place where those people live that is also renewed. In other words, the rule and reign of Christ is not just about people coming to him. It's about the entire created order falling underneath his rule and dominion. Verse 2. The next thing that John sees is the holy city, New Jerusalem, this beautiful city, and he describes it as descending from heaven to earth. It's coming out from God. This is the capital city of God's reign, and some people believe this is what Jesus was referring to in John 14 when he said, in my Father's house are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. This city descends out of heaven from God, and it becomes the connection between the new heaven and the new earth, and it's described as radiantly beautiful. Notice it says, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I've been to a lot of weddings. I was at a wedding last night in Michigan. I had a nephew who was married, and weddings are important, so I got up early with my sons. My wife had gone early, drove four and a half hours in the morning, went to a wedding service for an hour and a half, drove four and a half hours back last night. It's totally worth it, and I'm totally caffeinated this morning, so (laughs) I'm ready to go. Woo! Yeah! Why would I drive all that distance? Well, one, it's my first nephew, and secondly, I love weddings. Weddings are important, and brides are unbelievably beautiful as they walk down the aisle, and there is something redemptive and gospel-oriented about that moment, and I just love being on site and seeing it, because New Jerusalem is like a bride prepared for her husband. Verse three, a voice comes from the throne. That the one on the throne is God himself, and it says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. It, it's an announcement, an announcement in the created order that God is now dwelling with his people again. He will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The beautiful reality of this is that God and his people have now been brought together. It's not just beautiful because people are there and God is there, it's beautiful because God and his people have now found a place where they are together again. The separation that caused the expulsion from the Garden of Eden is over. 
the barrier that we feel even now between us and our creator, we see him as he is. Everything has been reconciled. And verse four then tells us what the effect of this is. It says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. And why? For the former things have passed away. He will wipe every tear away from their eyes. That's so personal, isn't it? When you wipe someone's tears, I mean, I'm I'm a relentless tear wiper. When Savannah or my wife are crying, I hate it. When my boys were little and they cried, I hated it. And I'm I'm a fixer by nature. I want to fix what's wrong. And when there's pain, there's a lot of times you can't fix pain. You can't solve what's underneath it. You can get tears off their face, right? Think of what it means here, not just for God to wipe away the tears, but God to get underneath what causes the tears and to remove that. Verse four tells us that the former things have passed away. The the world is restored. It's cleansed of everything that doesn't fit with God's heart. Satan and sin have all been defeated and dealt with, and now God dwells with his people. Think of it. No death, no cancer, no disabilities, no immorality, no abuse, no infertility, no, no more NICUs. No more broken friendships, no more misunderstandings, no more arguing, no more depression, no more sadness, no more fear. It's all gone because God wiped the tears away and he made all things new. Those things do not even exist. They're not even real anymore. So I think as we think of this, it's important for us to realize that in God's plan of redemption, it involves reclaiming a place where God dwells with his people. So often we think of Christianity in terms of a heart, or we think of it in terms of what it means, according to the Apostle Paul, for our bodies to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. And in many respects, the Old Testament and the New Testament are remarkably different in that God dwelt in a location, and now he dwells in the hearts of his people. And then Paul even calls the church in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 16, he calls them the collective temple of God. So in other words, the gospel and the, and the beauty of the Christianity is that the gospel is not limited to a geographic or physical location anymore. And yet there is coming a day when it will be limited in the sense that the earth, according to the book of Habakkuk, will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In other words, God will dwell with us and his glory will be everything and everywhere and there will be nothing outside of his rule and reign. And we will dwell with him and he with us. And that will be a real physical place where believers will live in fellowship with their God and with one another. So that place is important. And can I also just remind you that when we gather together as God's people in this place, that while this place isn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination, it's as close as we get to a foretaste of what is to come. 
So in those glorious moments when you're singing and you're like, God's like right here, or you're hearing a word from my mouth or someone else's in the Bible, and you're like, this is, like I'm connecting with God right here, right now. That's just a sliver of what all of eternity will be like. Or when you're talking with people out in the hallway and you're connecting with them as brothers and sisters in Christ, and you're like, man, I just love you and I love this in the sense of I don't want to leave, I don't want to go home, I'm hungry, but I want to go to lunch, I want to stay here. That's a foretaste of what the new heaven and the new earth will be like. I mean, imagine what it's going to be like to sing and to be able to declare and to be able to honor the Lord with every aspect of who and what we are. And frankly, as our culture becomes increasingly hostile to Christianity, the weekly gathering of God's people as a sanctuary in the midst of a sea of chaos, morally and spiritually, is incredibly important. And one day we will experience the beauty of what it means to worship together in a new heaven and a new earth. This is going to be glorious. You know what else is going to be cool? Is God's going to pick the songs. And we're going to like every single one of them. I mean, some of you today are like, sweet by and by. You're like, finally! And some of you are like, what? When was that written? Like, sweet by and what? Right? And so you just, we all, you always have that. A sermon, one sermon you like, one you don't. One song you like, one song you don't. And the beautiful thing is God's going to pick it all. You're going to love it all. And there's not going to be a single aspect of sinfulness in you. You're just going to love everything about it. You'll be like, I loved it all. It was awesome because God is the one who now has changed everything about me. And church at its best is that on the Lord's day. God's forever place. Secondly, God's forever people. Let's turn next to this. Now next week we're going to unpack verses five to eight more fully, but there's a shift that happens here. It shifts from talking about the place, God dwelling with them, with us. It shifts towards people. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And then notice this. To the thirsty, notice the focus on it people. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. You see the shift? And then as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, who, who, who are these? These are people whose lives represented those types of actions. Not just like once, but like their life was characterized by these things, these kind of people whose lives were so characterized by the overwhelming presence of sin in the world who never came to a point where they said, I can't live like this anymore. Someone's got to change my heart. And they put their faith in Jesus. If somebody doesn't make that commitment, doesn't put their faith in Christ, they then, the text says, will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I I wish the Bible didn't say that, but it does. So as important as place is, it's the people who are the objects of God's redemption. It's the people who have been saved through Christ. So an essential part of the beauty of the new heavens and the new earth is this praise that emanates from people from every tribe and language and tongue. And then verse nine, and again we'll we'll unpack verses five to eight more fully next week. Verse nine, 
It says, then one of the angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, this is a former angel in earlier um, statements in the book of Revelation, he spoke to me saying, come, now notice this, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So the angel says, I'm going to show you the bride, and then verse 10, he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. So notice this. The first time we heard about the city of New Jerusalem, it was described as a bride adorned for her husband. Now it is, let me show you the bride, and it's the city. See that? Before the city looks like a bride, now the bride is the city. So I take it to mean that what's happening here in the description of the city of New Jerusalem, that the glory of the city of New Jerusalem is the glory of the people, and the glory of the people is the glory of the city. That the glory of this place so emanates from its people that the glory is interchangeable in terms of the description of the city, which ultimately is also a description of the people. Look at verse 10. He carried me away, showed me the high showed me the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, verse 11, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper. That stone, again, should be familiar because we saw it in Revelation 4 and verse 3 in its attempt to describe the beauty of God on the throne. He was described, his glory was described as a jasper, and now we see the glory of God expressed again as jasper, but now it is the glory of God as seen in the city and as seen in God's people. So to be God's people and to be God's city means this, that what makes God lovely is what makes you lovely. That's going to be the glory of the new heaven and the earth. You look at God, you look at yourself, and you're like, whoa. And not whoa, like, look at me, like, whoa, I look like him. And then, whoa, you look like him, you look like him, you look like him, you, 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 we all look like him. And then we're like, oh, glory, and that's what heaven is like. And we just did it over and over and over and over and over, and we never get bored, never get tired of it. It's always awesome. It's always a beautiful expression of what it means for us to be with God. Verses 12 to 21 is loaded with various descriptions of the city. Let's unpack this quickly. The city is protected by a great and high wall. It has 12 gates, 12 angels, and the names of each of the tribes of Israel are inscribed over those gates. And then underneath the city, verse 14, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So we have here this beautiful mingling in the people of God, both this connection to Israel and the 12 tribes of Judah and a connection to the 12 apostles. So we have this beautiful merger of church and Israel together in the people of God in the city of New Jerusalem. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles. Then John attempts to measure the city. In verse 15, he's given a measuring rod of gold and told to measure the city and its gates. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, so we'll see in a moment. Um, its length and width and height are equal, meaning it's a cube. He measures it out and it measures to 12,000 stadia, which is somewhere around 1,380 miles. And more important than the actual size is the fact that this city is a massive cube. In the Old Testament, the most famous cube was the Holy of Holies, whether it was in the tabernacle or it was the temple. And so, essentially, what we have here is the bride of Christ is now occupying the Holy of Holies in her permanent dwelling. And in so doing, we see the fulfillment of what Paul talked about in a spiritual sense, that we are in Christ and in God. She now occupies the holy place. God and her 
occupy the same space. God and his people are together. And then verses 18 to 21 goes on further, describes the beauty of the city, identifying by all kinds of precious materials. The walls made of jasper, Again, that that stone that's used to describe the glory of God, the city itself and its streets are made of pure gold. In verses 18 to 21, the foundations of the city feature 12 different precious gems, and each of the 12 gates are made of a single pearl, and such that we have here the glory of both the city and its people is stunning, reflects the most precious substances known to mankind, and John is just trying to do one thing. He's trying to blow your mind. Just like, you can't believe the beauty of what I'm seeing. My guess is when we get to the new heaven and new earth, we'll see the beauty of it, and we may be able to talk to John and go, that was a nice try in Revelation 21 describing this. That's, that's, that's pretty good. But no, it's not quite that. It's, it's even better. So John describes all of this in terms of the city, New Jerusalem, but let me remind you how this little pericope started where he says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So he's not just describing the capital city, he's describing the people who live in that beautiful city as well. So let me put some handles on this. What's it going to be like to live in the new Jerusalem and on the new earth as God's people? Randy Elkhorn in his book on heaven suggests that what it will be like is very much like what we enjoy in this lifetime with people, but it will have a new level of fulfillment, a new level of purity, a new level of joy that we have not known. So just imagine the best of your relationship with God, those moments when you felt so intimate and so close Imagine those moments when you felt so close to another person, another believer, and those two things of you and your relationship with God and your relationship with other people are then brought together. That's what the new heaven and new earth is like. Imagine lives live with one another that are marked with words like unity and love and affirmation and unending happiness. And then just think of me, what it would be like to enjoy Let's just say a cup of coffee with Abraham. And yes, there will be coffee in the new earth. (laughs) Really good dark roast coffee. There'll be no cream and no sugar, but there'll be dark roast coffee. At least that's my little cube where I'm gonna live in, so you can come see me in my cube and I'll give you some coffee. So Abraham, imagine having coffee with Abraham. Or imagine sitting down and talking with Noah, or Moses. Or Elijah, what was it like when that chariot came and swooped you up? Imagine having a conversation with Joshua about the walls of Jericho falling. If you're an artist or a musician, imagine what it would be like to say, David, can we sing Psalm 23 together? I've always wanted to know what what it was supposed to sound like. Imagine what it would be like to listen to a story from Solomon or to pray with James to laugh with and at Peter, (laughs) to discuss an aspect of God with Paul, or to say to John, what was it like when you stood at the foot of the cross? And he said, mother, behold your son. Anybody else you'd like to spend time with? How about 
Jonathan Edwards, C.S. Lewis, Hudson Taylor, Jim Elliott, Charles Spurgeon. How about John and Charles Wesley? Or imagine playing a sport with a handicapped friend, having a conversation with a person who has a brain injury or Alzheimer's. Imagine, imagine meeting people who came to Christ because of Christmas offerings given through this church. Imagine people whose lands you visited on a vision trip and the children and the grandchildren of those, if the Lord tarries, who are there in the new heaven and the new earth and who will know that you were a part of my coming to faith in Christ. Or imagine spending time with a family member who died way too young or died even recently. Just imagine a people gathered and all of their lives are remarkably different and yet they share one thing in common and it is that whenever you hear their story, it eventually leads to this statement, and then God saved me, and then God saved me, and then God saved me, and that's when I met Jesus, and that's when I met Jesus. You know, I really hope you all have a story that sounds like that, and I met Jesus, and then God saved me, and if you're here today and that isn't true for you, I, I hope that Maybe you're sticking all the way through this Heaven series because you're curious. I'm really glad you're curious. And my hope is that over time you'll come to see how our sins are dealt with by Jesus and by coming to him, like how God forgives us. And maybe if you don't even believe everything about the Bible yet, maybe there's just a little part that something within your heart goes, huh, I think I actually believe that. And slowly over time, you cross the line and come to a point where you say, I... I believe in Jesus. So God's forever place, God's forever people, finally, God's forever rule. We come now to the final beautiful reality of God's rule, his rule being forever, because sin has been an affront to God's righteous rule. He redeemed his people, and he created a place for them to dwell with him so that he might rule and reign and be supreme over all things. So the things that we do that are wrong they're wrong, essentially, because we, when we do them, say to God, you don't rule me. So I'm going to be selfish. I'm going to be immoral. I'm going to lie. I'm going to cheat. I'm going to do these things because you don't rule. I rule. Watch. And that rebellion is not only costly, it's damnable because of how glorious and holy God is. And if you think, well, sin isn't really that bad, my statement to you would be, you think that because you've never seen the beauty of his holiness. And there will be no questions asked in heaven, except for maybe, why did you save these people? So in Revelation 21, 22, we see that the centrality of God is exalted. Verse 22, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So notice the centrality of the rule of God. There's no temple because God is there. Verse 23, and the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. In other words, in the same way that the sun and the moon are so critical to our survival, so central they are to how we even mark our days and mark our lives, so now the glory of God is as central in this reality as the sun and the moon are to this reality that we're in. And the scope 
of God's reign and rule touches everything. By its light, the nations walk, and the kings of the earth bring their glory into it. And look at verse 26, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. In, in other words, that the glory that these nations have are brought to God. There is no competitive glory in the new heaven and the new earth. God's glory reigns over all things, and people bring their glory, but they bring it to God. There are no competitors for God's reign. And what's more, there's no more evil or crime Verse 25, its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Verse 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor, <clears throat> nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So there's no need for locks on the door, no more passwords. No more security systems. You don't need a big dog anymore. If you walk in the new earth and you find someone in your house, you're like, hey, just stopping by, even if you don't know them. If that happened today, you'd freak out, and you should, because our world is broken. Like, what are you doing here in the new heaven, new earth? It's, hey, welcome. Glad you're here, because everything has so radically changed. The final scene in Revelation 22 emphasizes now the life-giving qualities of God's rule. It's not just that he reigns supreme, but there's life given in this, and it harkens all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing, notice this, from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It's flowing from this new central reality of the universe, and through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit. This tree of life was the tree that Adam and Eve were banished from in the Garden of Eden. The reason they were pulled out of the garden was so that they didn't eat of this tree of life. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. There it is. The triune God and his people live perfectly in fellowship and harmony with one another. Church, this is what God promised Adam and Eve when they fell. This is why God called Abraham from earth. This is what the Passover lamb and the Exodus event pointed toward. This is what was pictured in the tabernacle and the temple. This is the moment that the prophets all longed for. This is the fellowship that necessitated Jesus coming to earth. This is why he died. This is why his resurrection is so important. This is why the church gathers on the first day of the week. This is why we sing, why we pray, why we listen to the word of God. This is what we long for and what we expectantly wait for. Verse four and five says, then they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. So what does heaven mean for earth now? What does the new heaven and the new earth mean for now? Mm. 
It means that if the new earth is like that, then we ache and patiently wait for the day when God's forever people will live in God's forever place under God's forever rule. And so I don't know what's going on in your world. I don't know what pain you are wrestling with. I don't know what longing of your heart is yet unfulfilled. But this text and the beauty of the new heaven and the new earth calls us to say, even so, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus, come and make your people and your place and your rule our home forever. Let's pray. Rather than me praying right now, I want you to pray. And here's what I'd like you to pray about. Does what I've just described resonate within your heart? Or today, is your heart just flat as it relates to these things? Would you just perhaps acknowledge that before the Lord? Is there sin in your life that you need to confess to him and acknowledge? Is there some longing of your heart that's part of the brokenness of the world, meaning you wanted to be married and you're not, you wanted to have children, you haven't, you wish your mom didn't pass away this year, or you got really bad news about a friend or a son or a daughter? Could you just lay that at the feet of Jesus even now and say, God, I can't wait for the day for you to make that right. And you may be here, you're not a follower of Jesus, and maybe out of Revelation 21 and 22, you could just say, God, I want to, I want to give my life to Christ. I want to become a believer right now. And you just tell him. Father, help us to have a, a heavenly mindset that changes what we do even in the next two minutes. How we talk with one another, how we eat lunch, how we live this next week. Make us a people who know where our citizenship is. And when we ache because the world is broken and people are unfair or because it just seems that it's one thing after another, we can rest knowing that there will be a day when your people will live with you under your rule forever. And so we say, even so, Lord, come. And we pray this in the name of our coming King, in Jesus' name. Amen.